Peter. First Peter chapter two. And we'll be starting in verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, good morning, and grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. It's so good to uh, see you this morning. It's uh, so good to uh, have some of our members back. Good to have Eric here with us. Good to have our sister Catherine. And, uh, of course, we want to continue to pray for uh, Doyla and Daryl at the loss of Tom, uh, such a great and wonderful godly man. And uh, we're thankful for his life and for Doyla and Daryl as well. But it's, it's so good that we can come together as a family and we can rejoice but also uh, sorrow with each other as God's people, and both of those are very important. There was, um, there was a quote a while back that I read that really stuck with me, and it was actually a quote from Albert Hubbard, it's sometimes attributed to Plato or Aristotle, but it was actually Albert, the author Albert Hubbard who said it. He said, to avoid criticism, say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing. Now that quote stuck with me, maybe for a variety of, of reasons, but I think it stuck with me because there's, there's a great temptation to, as Christians and as the church in our present culture and in our present world, to kind of be nothing, to do nothing, to say nothing, and therefore we do that in order to avoid criticism from the crowds and to avoid criticism from popular culture, to avoid criticism from popular figures, the scorn that sometimes comes with standing up, with saying what is right, with doing what is right. There's a great temptation to do that, to kind of keep our faith private, to kind of keep it controlled, to make sure it doesn't bleed out outside of the boundaries that we place upon it, to make it to where it makes everybody else comfortable and we're comfortable and nobody's really offended and we could just kind of do our own Jesus thing, to choose anonymity in order to avoid animosity. That's a great temptation. And really a question maybe that some of us have, you know, how, how much can I keep private in order to make sure that what I really believe doesn't come out and offend someone or gain criticism from other people? There was a film a few years ago called Silence, and it was about Catholic missionaries in Japan around the 15th to 14th century. And really the whole film was about that question. The, the issue of public and private faith, because during that time Christian faith was very much persecuted in Japan. And throughout the film, this priest is, long story short, having to decide between watching his people be persecuted and his public profession for faith. And I hope I don't ruin the film for you, but he finally kind of gives in and submits to the government. And, and, and from all outward appearances, he appears to be 
have renounced Christianity, have renounced Christ, uh, is living kind of as a pagan in Japan in order to make sure his people didn't get persecuted. But then at the end when he dies, his wife buries him and he has a cross in his hand. And the whole point of the film was, okay, you know, he was genuinely a believer even though he didn't do anything outwardly that confessed he was a believer. That was his silence, if you will. And there's other themes with that theme, silence. And I think that, you know, that's a question that some have. How private can we keep our faith in order and, and still be faithful and still be, you know, followers of Christ? Of course, the first century church had to answer that question as well, right? How, how, how faithful can we be before it bleeds outside of these boundaries that, that make people uncomfortable, in fact, the, the, the issue with the first century church and the persecution wasn't that necessarily they worshipped Jesus. Rome was a pretty pluralistic society. You could worship who you wanted to worship with a few little tweaks and things within the government as long as you kind of kept it to yourself and you gave the little bit of pinch to Caesar, the little pinch of incense to let him know that, okay, you worship Jesus, but Jesus wasn't the ultimate one. Caesar was the ultimate one. And as long as you gave that little bit of offering to Caesar to recognize him as the true son of God, to recognize him as the true sovereign, you can worship Jesus all you like. But the problem with the first century church was that they weren't willing to give that little inch. In fact, not only did they do that, they were good citizens, they submitted to the government, but the message that they constantly said was, there's a new king in town, and his name is Jesus, and he's the true son of God, and one day Caesar's going to answer to him, and their faith was so public that it couldn't be ignored. It, 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 they knew that they couldn't internalize it, they knew that it had to have some genuine reflection in the world that they lived in. And probably the reason for that is because they understood Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. They understood the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. When he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp under it or a basket, but on a stand and give it light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Now remember that this comes on the hills of Jesus saying, there's a, there's a verse here that's very important between Jesus saying, this is what it means to live in the kingdom, you're meek, you're hungering for righteousness, you're pure, you're doing all these things, and we talked about how that in a fallen world leads to persecution. And so here's the irony, he says you're going to be persecuted for being the people that you want to be. You're going to be persecuted for being that type of people. And so the natural reaction is, is that, well, why don't we just kind of keep ourselves quiet then? We can be those people without being so public about it. And then on the other side of that, Jesus says, no, you've got to shine. You've got to be salty. You've got, you, you can't just keep this in. You can't just contain it. And so all of these things build on top of each other. Be the people you're going to be. It's going to lead to persecution in a fallen world. But don't let that stop you from shining. And that's where we are now in our study of Matthew. Discussing what it really means to be the light of the world. 
And as I thought about this passage and how maybe we would think about it and maybe how it would challenge us as God's people in today's world, I think when we read this text, we, we see, okay, Jesus wants us to stand out. He wants our faith to be evident. He wants it to be obvious to the world. I think maybe we could ask this question. Do you make a difference? Do you make a difference in the world around you? Now, I'm not talking about monumental, cataclysmic change in the public sphere. I'm talking about in your world, in your operating world, in your family, and the people that you are around, in your relationships, in your marriage, in your community, does your faith make a difference? Or is it so privatized, is it so quiet, is it so hidden, that if people said, yes, such and such is a Christian, they'd say, really? Didn't know that. Jesus says there's two ways that your faith becomes evident. There's two ways that your faith become, make a difference. It's by being salt and being light. Two very interesting metaphors. Being salt and being light. What does that mean to be salt? Well, I think that when he talks about salt, now there's a variety of uses of salt, but salt was used for taste in these days especially. It had something to do either with preservation, taste. It had to do with food. And so he's saying, you are the salt of the earth. So there needs to be something that people taste in your life. So we might could put it this way. People see that you're salt when they taste the goodness of God in or by your character. They taste the goodness of God in your character. In who you are. The way that you live, the way that you conduct yourself. People taste the goodness of God. Peter talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 3. He says you need to hunger for the sincere milk of the word if in fact you have tasted of the goodness of God. Now we taste of the goodness of God within salvation and, and when we receive that goodness. But people can taste the goodness of God and how his people live. Do they really see how good God is and how you live? In fact, later he's going to talk about, hey, you're supposed to do these things. Be perfect. Why? For your heavenly Father is perfect. We'll, we'll discuss what he means by that when we get to that text a little bit later. But just really, here's, here's how I want you to see the Sermon on the Mount. All of these things kind of build upon each other. So he said you need to live this life of saltiness and, and lightness and brightness. And then after that, he begins to talk about the type of conduct, the type of character that brings about this goodness. The, that allows people to taste the goodness in your life. And so he talks about things like moving forward in the text. He says, when you choose love over lust. He's going to talk about a few verses later about how not to look after someone, to lust after them in your heart. To not, to not object, objectify them, but to genuinely see them as people. And, and in a world that, that subjectifies people, that, that, that uses people, that abuses people, that kind of uses people and then throws them away, he said people will see the goodness of God in you when you choose to love them rather than to objectify them. When you choose to love them rather than to lust after them. People will see that that's the kind of God that we're made into. That he's not just using us and then disposing of us. That he doesn't just see value in us because we can do something for him. But he genuinely loves us. So they'll see the taste of goodness of God's character in that. He'll go on to talk about how they taste the goodness of God when you choose to stay rather than to walk away. 
He'll talk about divorce and, and the difficulty that comes with that. And he says, that's not what God intended for, for you. Faithfulness, choosing to stay even when things are difficult. That, that, is, that is a difficult thing to do. Even within relationships, that's, that's very difficult. When, when the outside world is pressuring you and saying, this is what you need to choose. You need to seek your own interests. You need to defend your own desires. You need to choose you above anybody else. He said, but when as a child of God, you, you choose to remain faithful to someone, to invest in them even when it's difficult for you, he said, people see God in that because God is faithful. God's steadfast in his love for you. And so they taste that goodness there. He goes on to say that they taste the goodness when you choose to be honest and not manipulative. When your yes is yes and your no means no. And you don't kind of use these little promises to manipulate people. Oh yeah, I'll do that. I, I swear on my mother's grave. But then you don't do it. When you choose to be people of integrity and honesty in a world of manipulation in a world where people will say anything and do anything to get ahead. When you're willing to sacrifice for your own integrity, when you're willing to, for it to cost you something, the psalmist talks about this in Psalm 15, when he says, what kind of person can dwell with God? And one of the things he says is this, that a man who swears to his own hurt and he does not change... That is, he, he says he's going to do something, he makes a promise that he's going to do something, and then he does it, even if it hurts him, even if it costs him something. And Jesus says, when you do that, people will taste God's goodness within you. And then uh, he says that they will, they will see the, that when you choose reconciliation rather than retaliation, he talks about loving your enemies, doing good to those who hate you and persecute you. Let me, let me ask you something, brother. In the world that we're living in right now, where there is so much polarization, where there is so much hate, when there is so much contempt and, and just scorn for the other side, do you think a people that are dedicated to loving for and praying for their enemies and they're dedicated to doing good to their enemies. Do you think a people like that in today's world will stand out? Will give a, give a taste of God's goodness? I think so. And this is what Jesus is saying, is that when, when the darkness shrouds, when people are choosing revenge and retaliation, God's people choose reconciliation whenever possible. And they're trying to find ways to seek peace. He says that, that makes a difference in this world. So they taste the goodness of God within your character. But not, Jesus isn't only concerned about taste here. He's not only concerned about salt, but he's concerned about light. What does it mean to be light? To, to, to see, what do they see within your life? And so the second way that we shine is that they see the goodness of God... By your service. By your service. So chapter 5 is mainly con, con, focused on our character before God within the kingdom. Chapter 6 turns a little bit more towards our service within other people. How we serve the world around us. What are our priorities in this world? 
And he says, when you live this way, people are going to see the goodness of God in your service. They'll taste the goodness of God in your character. They'll see the goodness of God in your service. In what way? Number one, when you serve for someone's good rather than your gain. When you go to give to the poor, he says, don't announce it. Don't trumpet it. Don't say, everybody stop what you're doing. I just want to let you know I just donated to this good cause. Thought you should know that. All right, you can go on now. That's what the Pharisees did. Now, let me tell you something. We might not blow trumpets whenever we do something good, but isn't it a temptation to not post on Facebook when we do something good? Isn't it a temptation that whenever we do something great for somebody, oh, man, we want people to know? We humble brag, right? You ever heard of that? Humble bragging? It's a great term. I'm not, I'm not usually on board with a lot of the new modern terms, but humble bragging is a good one. It's where we brag about something, but we act like we're actually being humble. I'm so humbled that this would happen to me. Right? And really what you're saying is, I'm so awesome. This should have happened to me. Right? Jesus says, what's going to stand out in a world that is constantly focused on doing things just for their gain, just for their notoriety, just to be seen by other people, to appear to be good, what's really going to stand out is when you serve other people for their good and you don't really care who knows. You don't really care who knows. Now, later he's going to say, you need to do these good works so that they'll see you and they'll glorify your God in heaven. So again, he's not saying you need to be just private and you don't want any, you're just trying to make sure nobody knows you're a Christian, nobody knows you're doing a good thing. He said, but you just do them. And if people see it and they glorify God, that's great. But the motive behind it isn't so that people will just see you, but that they will see God in you. That's the point. So when they see you serving for someone's good rather than your gain, it makes you shine in your service. Next, he says, when you're sincere, rather than simply showing off. Again, in chapter 6, he talks about people making long prayers for pretense, for just show. He said the Gentiles do that. They, they, they make all this flowery language. They would call out to God in a hundred different names, and they would make vain repetitions. They would say the same thing over and over and over and over again, not because they felt like it was a genuine need, but because they thought that they would sound more religious if other people heard them. And he says, whenever you're sincere, whenever you have a genuine faith, rather than being simply show about your faith and showing off, people will notice that. In a world of, of inauthenticity, in a world of hypocrisy, people are looking for sincere Christians. Listen, if we're being honest right now, the religious world is held in skepticism in our culture. Part of that is due to how prominent Christian, professing Christian leaders have conducted themselves. And so you need to know that when people in the world hear that you're a Christian and they have no connection to that, there's probably going to be a little skepticism, a little bit of hesitancy to trust that you are who you say that you are. And to be honest with you, I can't blame them. The way that some Christians have conducted themselves publicly, I don't blame them. So there's going to be some hesitancy there to trust you. Even hesitancy within our own ranks, within our kids going off to college. 
Is there genuineness there? Is there sincerity there? Or is it simply show? He says, but if you really genuinely love God and you genuinely care about people, and that's sincere, it's going to show. It's going to shine in a world of fakeness, in a world of, of just putting on a show for other people. And then he says, what's really going to shine in your service is when you are content and not constantly anxious. He talks about being content, being satisfied with where you are in life, not worrying about your clothes, not worrying about your food. At one point he says, is life not more than food? Is life not more than the clothing that you put on your body? Just be satisfied with these simple things. Trust in the Lord and he's going to take care of you. Don't allow your life to be fretting and anxious and constantly worrying about things. Again, let, let me ask you a question. In a world that is constantly fretting and worrying and anxious about what's going to happen tomorrow, about what's going to happen to the economy, about what's going to happen to the healthcare system, about what's going to happen to this and this and this and this, if a Christian is able to look at that with clarity and, and, and not be naive, be realistic, I'm not saying you're living on a cloud, you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, as one uh, preacher used to say, but, but he says, but you're not anxious. That anxiety does not determine your life. You're content with what you have. You're satisfied because you know that your treasure is in heaven, as we'll go to talk about in Matthew chapter 6. He says, will that stand out in the world? Will that shine in the world? Absolutely it will. And so they will taste the goodness of God within your character. They will see the goodness of God within your service. And again, this is very public faith, right? This is not just us being quiet. He said, don't hide it under a basket. Don't hide your light under a basket. Put it out there. Let people see that you love Jesus. Let them see your life. Don't just cut yourselves off from the world. And again, there's a great temptation for us to kind of isolate ourselves, to be privatized, and to just do our own thing. He said, just live your life for God before people and let them see it. Yeah, that might bring persecution. That might bring suffering. But what it also brings is an opportunity to shine. It's an opportunity for people to taste and to see God's goodness within your life. But what we also see here within this text is there, this describes an active discipleship. It's not stagnant. It's not just coming to church on Sunday. This is discipleship. It means a way of life. That's what Christianity is. It's a way of life. You're following Jesus, and you're saying, Jesus, I want you to show me how to live. I want you to show me how to live. Every day, every moment. I want you to show me, and I'm going to follow you. I'm going to be your disciple. That's what Jesus said to do in Matthew 28, right? Go and make people who come and sit in a pew on Sunday. Go and make disciples. Go and make people who are going to say, Jesus, I want you to teach me how to live. I want you to show me how to live. And, and, and at the same time, while this is an act of discipleship, you might be looking at this and thinking, well, you know, why would people persecute that, right? Like, why would people persecute people that are trying to live that way, that are trying to be gracious, that are trying to seek reconciliation rather than retaliation, that are sincere? Why, why does Jesus say that there might be some persecution at times because of that? Because there is the taste of truth. Because in the midst of all of this lifestyle, there, there, is, there is unbending, 
unaltering, and uncompromising truth. And everything that he's talking about here is built upon that. That there is uncompromising truth about who Jesus is, about the life. Because if you're living that life, again, we talked a little bit about this last week. If you're living that life and you're intentionally living that life, so much to the point that it causes you suffering, that it causes you outside scorn, what you're saying to other people just by living that way is, this is how you should be living. This is how we all should be living. So your life becomes a judgment upon them and there's this taste of truthfulness to where they see that and they see that it's true and they see that it's right, but they don't want that. Some people aren't going to want that in their life and so the only thing that they have to do is to snuff out the light. And that's what Jesus said in John 3, a passage that we looked at last week. I think it's so important to understanding what he's talking about here. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. Have you ever looked at our world and thought, you know, why don't they, why don't they like us, right? I, I was having an exchange with someone recently and I was, I was just saying, listen, if you teach the truth on biblical ethics, if you take a traditional interpretation of scripture, which we do, if you do that, you're going to see, moving forward, increasing antagonism from the world. More slander. It's going to increase. It has been increasing over the past few years. It's going to continue to increase in coming years unless something changes. And somebody got on there and said, well, yeah, but we need to make sure that we're you know, mindful of how we talk about these things, that we're gentle, we're meek, and we're loving. Amen. Absolutely. If we're not doing that, then we're not really following a biblical ethic. We have to be gentle and meek and kind in how we speak truth. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, brethren, light, the, the darkness hates the light. And you need to get it in your head that it doesn't matter how nice you say it. It doesn't matter how kind you are. The darkness hates the light. And so you need to know that if you continue to say things like, you know, homosexuality is a sin, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, but it's a sin, and we can't, we can't allow that within the, the church and, and leadership positions, whatever it is. If you continue to say things like that, I'm just using that as an example because it's a well-known example, it doesn't matter how kindly you say it, it doesn't matter how lovingly you say it, they're going to hate it. And if you're thinking otherwise, you're going to be ill-prepared to face that rejection. And so he says, the darkness hates the light. And, but here, here's what we need to be mindful of as we talk about this, we kind of start coming to a close. Jesus lets us know that there is a grave danger for an ineffective Christian. For Christians that is just taking it easy, not taking their discipleship seriously, inactive, they don't volunteer, they're not doing anything within the service of the kingdom, they think they're going to ride up you to heaven. He said, if you lose your saltiness, you're good for nothing. You use your salt, lose your... Now, sometimes we talk about this being people losing their influence. That can have something to do with it, but he's talking about effectiveness, a public faith. And he says, if you lose your effectiveness here, what good are you? Except to be thrown out into the street and to salt the, the streets that they would do sometimes in Roman roads. There's no good in that. So there is a grave danger here as Christians that we need to be mindful of that God expects us to be active in our discipleship. He expects us to be taking a role within the kingdom work, whatever that might be. It means being an active participant within the kingdom of God. 
within serving other people, within serving the church, within teaching the community, whatever it is, it's about being ineffective. And so the warning here is for us, don't hide your light. Don't lose your saltiness as a Christian by becoming ineffective in the kingdom. Otherwise, you will be thrown out. And I will say this, those two things are tied. Who you are as a person affects how you live before God. I love 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7, because there have been times in my life where I've thought, man, I don't know, what, what can I do exactly to be effective, to be more effective in the kingdom? What can I do to be this type of person he's talking about where I'm serving others and people see the goodness of God in me? And Peter says in 2 Peter 1, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, your knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. He's talking about all these virtues, all these characteristics. He said you need to add these things to your faith, supplement your faith with these things. Now notice what he says. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you are this type of person, if you're for making every effort to supplement your faith with these things, God is going to use you. God's going to find a way to use you. It's going to keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the work of the kingdom. So be dedicated to following Christ and being the people that he needs us to be. So here's the question for us this morning. Two questions here. What is hiding your light? I think there's been a lot of things in 2020 that have gotten us into habits and to things that, have, that are hiding our light. What is it this morning that is hiding your light? What is it this morning that, is, that has made you ineffective in the kingdom? I mean, he's talking to Christ followers here. He says, you can hide your light. You can dim your influence. You can be ineffective and inactive. What is it in your light that is hiding your light? And again, do you make a difference in the world around you? Does your faith make a difference? Maybe we could put it this way. Is the world better because of your belief? Is the world better because of your belief? I want to end with a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a priest during the time of Hitler in Germany. And whenever Hitler was coming to power, there were kind of two different paths that professing Christians took at that time. One of them was to support Hitler, which some of them did. The other was to flee to England, to more safe areas, because they saw what was coming. Bonhoeffer not only didn't flee, he returned to Germany. Because he knew that, that his people were going to need his voice, and he knew that he had to do something. And so he did. He he resisted Nazism. He, he resisted Hitler. And because of that, he was killed for it. He was publicly executed by the Nazi regime not too long before the war ended. And before, one, before he passed away, in one of his writings, he said this. He said, Discipleship is as visible as light in the night is a mountain in the flatlands. To flee into invisibility is to deny the call 
Any community of Jesus which wants to be invisible is no longer a community that follows him. And he died because of that belief. His faith was so public, so unavoidably, unapologetically unwavering that he died because of it. What about you? Does your faith make a difference this morning? If not, then maybe there are some things that you need to change in your life. Maybe there are some things that you need to ask help with from the church. Or maybe you haven't even received the cleansing blood of Christ to become a light in the world, to reflect his goodness. You haven't placed your faith in him, repented and turned your life over to him, confessed him as Lord and King. You haven't been immersed for the forgiveness of your sins. Whatever your need is, why don't you come? Together we stand and as we sing. I am mine, no.